Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. and welcome to New Books and Latino Studies, a channel within the New Books Network. I am your host, Tiffany Gonzalez, and today on the program, we have Dr. Andrew Sandoval-Strauss, an associate professor in the Department of History and Director of Latina and Latino Studies at Penn State University. Dr. Sandoval-Strauss is here to discuss Barrio America, How Latino Immigrants Saved the American City, published with Basic Books in 2019. Hello, Andrew, and welcome to the New Books Network in Latino Studies. Hi, gracias por invitarme. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I'm really excited to hear you talk about your work. And while reading reading it, it really brought me back to when you did the panel presentation at the Western History Association when your book had just been released. So it's it was good to have it here in my in my hands and read what you were talking about, and also the beautiful cover that I hope you can discuss a little bit more in our conversation. Absolutely. So before we dive into your work, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm originally from New York City. I was born in the Bronx uh, to immigrant parents. My uh, mother's side of the family came from Colombia, uh, and in particular, Cundinamarca. Uh, They left Colombia at a time known as La Violencia. There was, in the aftermath of a 1948 political assassination, it was followed by just tit-for-tat, large-scale political violence. And so my mother, Cecilia, and her brother's Jaime, Jorge, and Alvaro uh, all came to the United States, uh, where they moved in with their tia Julia, uh, who was married to an American um, engineer. Uh, My father's side of the family uh, are all from Central Europe, uh, and after uh, barely surviving World War II, uh, they migrated various places, first the Netherlands, uh, then South Africa, uh, then Ecuador, and ultimately to the United States. Um, So growing up, I was really the only person in the family who spoke English with no accent. And talking about your your family connection, and it's perhaps I'm, I might be overstepping, but your family history of immigration. It, can you tell us a little bit about that? If that shaped your influence of discussing this topic, I know that when you're writing the acknowledgement sections, you mentioned one particular event that happened with the Daisy Wheel and your mom, and so living in New York and her moving. 
Um, it'd be great to hear about how you arrived to this topic that you write about in Barrio America, because it's it's a really important discussion of how immigrants have saved um, America and its urban landscape. Sure. Um, really, the the path to this project was a combination of two factors. The first was I kept running into uh, large numbers of Latinas and Latinos in unexpected places. Um, and at the same time, I didn't really see those people uh, in the urban history literature that I'd been really brought up on uh, you know, since I was in college in the 1980s and 1990s. And that sort of moment in 1991 that you mentioned was, was an important one. Uh, my mother and I were living uh, in Manhattan at the time. It was the uh, height of the urban crisis violence. It was a time when there were six homicides a year in New York that that uh, that year. And there were people selling crack on our street corner. My mother just said, you know, this is no place for a four foot 11 inch tall woman and her son to be living. Um, so we moved out to the just the very first municipality um, across the, the, the county line. And we thought, okay, this is the sort of you know, destination for a lot of, of, of white flight. They're not going to not going to be as many uh, immigrants here. Uh, but the very first time we sort of went to try to find this specialty item, a daisy wheel for our printer, now kind of an archaic part, um, we looked in the yellow pages and found this uh, um, office supply store. And my mother picked up the phone and called them, and the people on the other side answered in Spanish. And so she, of course, switched into Spanish and, and began to chat with them um, and expressed surprise that, oh, okay, so th this is great. I didn't, didn't expect to find folks here because you could also tell that the accent was Mexican. Now, there were going to be, to begin with, um, this was New Rochelle, New York, historically a black and white city. E.L. Doctorow's novel Ragtime takes place there. So to find Latinos there was pretty surprising. Um, but all right, there are going to be a certain number of, let's say, Puerto Ricans and Cubans, but these are Mexicanos, and that was a very new thing in New York. So that experience was followed up by going to graduate school in Chicago. And I thought, okay, well, Chicago, uh, the south side of Chicago, that's famously a big African-American neighborhood. But if you got on the 55th Street bus and just went west for a while, um, you'd run into taquerias and papelerias and panaderias, and it was puro Mexicanos there. right? And then the same thing happened a decade after that when I went to the AHA meeting in uh, Atlanta in 2007. Right? It's a classic black and white city, but I went to see the their famous aquarium and I'm hearing Spanish sp spoken all around me. So those kinds of experiences said, hey, we're just a, a much bigger part of urban America than most folks have noticed. Um, this is not to say that, that nobody had, right? Dal Myers had noticed it. Lin-Manuel Miranda had noticed it because it sort of plays a role in, in, in the Heights, which was first performed in 2000. But it just really needed a lot more elaboration. And that's how it came to the idea of a broader project on the effect of Latino uh, migrants and immigrants on the American city. Absolutely. I know a lot, of, just looking at the historical literature um, about what's been written about race relations, a lot of it, a lot of Latino studies scholars are pushing against the black and white dynamics and they've, you know, they've expanded beyond the Southwest, the Midwest. And as someone that's grown up in Chicago, especially in little areas that you talk about in Brighton Park and going to Pilsen with my family or a little village, you know, on the weekends traveling out there. I mean, Latinos exist. Mm -hmm. They exist in pockets of communities um, that you just wouldn't think about because the national conversation hasn't always been about Latin, the Latina and Latino experience. 
Right, exactly. And I, I think that you know, it's certainly the case that historians take a little while to catch up, just as we feel like we need you know, 20 or 30 years of, of retrospect to really get a, a sense of historical perspective. Um, but the process of at least sort of post-war, post-1965 migration, that's now more than 50 years old. So it's certainly high time that we look at this methodically and, and carefully. Absolutely. So I want to go into your argument. I mean, one of your arguments is that Latinos have saved the urban cities and through their labor, their economy, their cultural heritage and their their political um, beliefs. But I'm I'm interested to knowing why you focus specifically on Chicago and Dallas, you know, the communities there, such as Little Village and Oak Cliff. Why, Why those two particular communities? Sure. Well, each of those is the largest immigrant barrio in its city. Right, that little village is the biggest concentration of, of Spanish-speaking people in Chicago, uh, and Oak Cliff uh, plays the same role for Dallas. And that each of these cities is itself uh, a kind of a great example of the two main kinds of urbanism uh, in America. Right, Chicago is a classic old industrial city, and Dallas is a classic sprawling sunbelt city. So by looking at a barrio in each of these, I can get a sense of what might be the differences and commonalities there. So the uh, South Lawndale or Little Village neighborhood that I look at in Chicago um, was a classic uh, industrial immigrant neighborhood that remarkably hit its peak population in 1920. And it began to decline um, after that. So it had already been decades of very gradual population decline before the first Latinos uh, begin to arrive. Um, And they really do come at just the right time because they uh, sort of show up just when uh, that neighborhood neighborhood needs the most in the sense that uh, you see a, a dramatic, not just for gradual diminution in population, but white flight has taken hold because the uh, the white ethnics that live there um, are afraid that black folks are going to move in from just across Cermak Road um, from North Lawndale. And they do indeed begin to do that. And it's really only the um, arrival of, of uh, first Mexican-Americans and then Mexicans that really begins to repopulate first just that neighborhood so that within a few decades, um, Little Village has more people in it than it ever has before. A similar thing happens with a little bit of a different timing um, in Oak Cliff. Um, their uh, white flight begins a little bit later in response to uh, the advent of, of federally court-mandated busing. Um, and a lot of folks move out to the Dallas suburbs or to North Dallas um, and you have just stores going empty, properties going empty, um, such that in 1991, a couple of decades after this process has, has been underway, uh, Grover Lewis, a guy who was sort of one of the gonzo journalists who wrote for Rolling Stone and New West at the time, um, did this sort of elegy for his part of town uh, that, oh, it used to be so prosperous and full and there used to be all these shops and people on the streets and what has happened to it. Um, what he doesn't notice is that it's already begun to come back. It's seen its first significant population growth in more than 40 years. uh, And that is entirely driven again by uh, Latinos, primarily Mexicanos, some Puerto Ricanos, a few Cubanos. Uh, But in both neighborhoods, you see this same um, broader pattern that can be identified in a bunch of others, where you see the urban crisis um, increasingly affects it. You see abandonment, you see economic devitalization, you see rising crime, you see, see fiscal crisis. And then it begins to turn around in substantial part because these new folks begin to move in. Yeah. And it's 1965 that you see this this 
this wave. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the repercussions or the pushback. Was there any pushback against this new demographic coming in within the and moving into these two communities from lawmakers or any policies, or was there support for it? Well, it's it's an interesting story, uh, and I think the the first instance of this comes in uh, the Chicago neighborhood of South Lawndale, then called Little Village. What you see is that there are a certain number of mostly Mexican-Americans moving in starting in the late 1950s. And I sort of go back to the oral history of a woman named Guadalupe Lozano, who describes being one of the first, as she says, Latino families to move into Little Village. And generally, they're pretty badly mistreated by the white ethnics that live there, right? They're chased out of the playground. People call the cops on them. Um, and there's this general sense that, oh, we don't want you here. But at the same time, there's the sense in the neighborhood, at least among some of the real estate operators, that we're in big trouble, right? We can't afford to turn people away. Uh, lots of those white ethnics are moving out for fear of, of having you know, even one African-American neighborhood. So a group of, of real estate operators led by a fellow that I, I met and interviewed named Richard Dolesh, um, specifically reaches out to first the Mexican-American and then the Mexican community and says effectively, hey, would you like to move in here? And he arranges for them to get the kinds of regular mortgages, FHA-backed mortgages, that black people are not getting uh, at the time. So there's sort of a a, a racist conspiracy uh, that is the first uh, sort of active effort to rebuild a city neighborhood specifically by bringing in Latinos. Now, we find out later in the book that the folks who move in are not quite so ready to, to absorb the kind of uh, uh, racist ideology that lays behind this. But um, at least in that one neighborhood, there's an active welcome by the real estate community. If you look at Dallas, um, there, as in so many areas of, of, of Latino life, it depends a lot on class and skin color, right? There are a certain number of... Um, Mexican-American entrepreneurs that start to move in as early as the 1940s. And they get a little bit of, of hostility. I have sort of a, an oral history um, with uh, one woman who says, you know, the, there was a woman who came into the florist shop and said, oh, those people are moving in, not realizing that the person she was speaking to, even though she was sort of light-skinned, was a Mexicana. Um, and so you had sort of low-level uh, hostility. But you didn't see the kind of organized violence that inevitably broke out in so many of these communities when even one black family tried to move in. So here you see, you know, Latinas and Latinos occupying a sort of racial middle ground where they're certainly not, you know, accepted as fully white, but in many cases they're viewed as preferable to African Americans as neighbors. So they sort of find their way into neighborhoods often uh, on those terms. Yeah. That's And that conversation that you bring up about, I mean, looking at the demographic and the landscape of how it's changing between black, white, and brown, what you also complicated is also when you look at Chicago, how the Latinos are not just of Mexican descent, but there's also Puerto Ricans side by side within these communities and how their understanding of how they represent these communities and their positionality. You know, you talk about citizenship and at first, the tensions that brew up within even people of Mexican descent and Puerto Ricans. How did that change the landscape within the Latino community? Well, I mean, there's sort of a gradual process of 
uh, of accretion as new groups of, of people from Latin America arrived, right? The Puerto Ricanos have been in Chicago uh, since really the 1940s because there's an entire agency on the island that is dedicated to, to relocating them to Chicago. Um, and they sort of are, are in the sort of northwest side of the city. Uh, the Mexicanos uh, begin to move in. Of course, there are some there from the 19-teens who have been there for a while, but Little Village um, is a, a latter migration. And one of the ways that they're linked up is that um, politically, you find districts in the city government that join a certain number of Puerto Ricans and a certain number of Mexican-Americans. Now, of course, all Puerto Ricans are citizens and can vote immediately. Uh, the Mexicans usually have to wait till the next generation, uh, but they have to join forces in order just to get some sort of access to what is often a very closed and very uh, racially biased uh, ward system in Chicago politics. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things that brings them together. As you say, in some cases, when they're competing for jobs with each other, um, you can see a certain amount of hostility because the Puerto Ricanos, you know, they have the benefit of they're all citizens, they're documented, they can get whatever jobs they want. And some of them actually do resent uh, uh, the Mexicanos accusing them whether or not they are in fact undocumented of being undocumented. And then sometimes the, that abuse comes back to them in the form of, well, you know, you are all, you're already all citizens. Why aren't you looking for better jobs than these? So in some cases, it's not some sort of big, harmonious Latino family. Uh, it, it can be politically, but economically, not always. Absolutely. You mentioned the issue about, not an issue, but the, the possibilities of coalition building with politics and how it came about with reading with um, for the mayor in Chicago and how they created a coalition to for political representation. I mean, that's moving. Now they're just not just creating community, but now they're they're creating self-determination through the political system. And in Chicago, you have the ward system and in Dallas has the at-large can you tell us a little bit more about the limits and gains of you, what you found writing about political representation for Latinas and Latinos during this time as they're creating these coalitions? Well, it's a very slow and painstaking process. And each city has its particular way of excluding Latinos and other people of color from politics. Um, in Dallas, it's simply the at-large system. Now, this is a system that was originally uh, more or less designed to keep earlier waves of immigrants away from political power by not having any locally geographically based sort of mini districts or wards within the city by having elections at large. That way you couldn't have, you know, the cases when earlier, let's say the Irish or the Polish or the Bohemian people concentrated in one neighborhood and could, be, could become the political representatives of that neighborhood, right? When you have all of the, the, uh, elected officials elected citywide, that dilutes their power. And it's really not until a court ruling um, sort of puts an end to that in the early 1990s that you can have individual districts um, where you can have, let's say, a couple of African-American representatives on the city council, you know, one and then two uh, Latino representatives. You know, before that, just for decades, it was an all-white city council. So it, it's that sort of move to a district-based system um, that puts an end to that. Now, in Chicago, they had had a district-based system really since the foundation of the city government in 1837. Um, but what they did was the, the people at City Hall carefully gerrymandered and otherwise divided um, people, of, of, uh, people of color to keep them out of power. And there, 
um, there were a certain number of obedient African-American Democrats and a certain number of obedient uh, Latino Republicans who just tried to work with the machine, but, you know, very clearly found that, that their interests were not actually truly being representative. So you had the beginning of IPOs, independent political organizations. Um, and, you know, one of those was right in the, the area of Little Village um, and of Pilsen. And they took on the machine and essentially backed Harold Washington for mayor. And so the Latino vote, though obviously Washington is elected primarily on a huge and enthusiastic African-American vote, but his actual margin of victory in his first election uh, can be accounted for by just that sort of tens of thousands of Latinos who predominantly vote for him. So it takes decades for this to come to fruition, uh, but ultimately, you know, they're able to, to elect mayors of color. Now, what you have not seen yet uh, are Latino or Latina mayors in either city. Um, you know, there was a, a possibility with, with Tri Garcia uh, a few years ago, but he, he ultimately did win. But it's, it's been a, a very gradual accretion of power um, with a lot of twists and turns and corruption, unfortunately. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, I mean, the Chicago political system is very, it's still very machine-based, very, um, I think you mentioned the word, no um, compandrasco, pero it's entrenched within the favor political system. You, oh, what yeah. you do for me, I'll do for you. Right. Patronage, right? Um, yeah, patronage. There we go. Thank you. They've got patrones, except they're right. Literally patronage. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, thinking back, I mean, communities are very politically active. And this is reminiscing growing up at Brighton Park, where my mom would go visit, um, not visit, but would attend political meetings for the community, for the ward. And just being around that, that, you know, Latino communities are active. And I think that's what you really highlight within this is that, you know, you're moving this, these discussions from, you know, the Southwest Texas Latinos being politically active in this historiographical placement, but, you know, also showing she, Chicago has a strong Latino political activism and that, you know, Viva, uh, what is it? The Viva Kennedy campaigns were mm. even very popular there. Um, that's also politicizing Latinos in Chicago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the Viva Kennedy campaign is, is, very important both in Illinois and in Texas in that election, right? That is famously one of the closest uh, uh, federal elections um, uh, in the 20th century United States. And in not as much in, in Illinois, but definitely in Texas, um, the Kennedy-Johnson tickets margin uh, is accounted for by Mexican-Americans voting, especially in South Texas. Um, there are, aren't really that many, uh, or rather, I should say there are not enough um, Mexican Americans in Illinois to make that big of a difference in 1960, uh, but certainly the same division, right? The nationalities division of the Democratic National Committee uh, that organizes white ethnics, right? German Americans, Italian Americans, Irish Americans, Greek Americans, Polish Americans. Those are the same people who are sort of the entree for uh, Mexican American, Puerto Rican, and other Spanish-speaking constituencies to get into national politics. Yeah. And there, there are ideas of what policy should be put in place, how politics and governance should be protecting or shaping the local communities is another way that, that you're also showing is that how Latinos have shaped the urban landscape in these two particular cities. And then you also talk about going into transnational cities. And so what's another way that you talk about how urban America is changing by the late 20th century? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, well, I think one of the ways that we need to see this in a broader transnational context is to realize that the process of urbanization that really saves American cities beginning in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and beyond, this is a process that begins decades earlier within Latin America, right? So the the, the trend from the 1940s um, into the new millennium in Latin America is massive urbanization. You have lots of cities which over 50 years or so, uh, will multiply in population by a factor of 10, like Santo Domingo uh, grows from, I think, uh, about 180,000 to 1.85 million over those 50 years. Uh, Mexico City goes from about 3 to 18 million. Um, Lima, Peru, from about 600,000 to, to more than 7 million. Um, so cities are growing dramatically in Latin America. And the same process of migration that drives people from rural Latin America into Latin American cities begins, especially um, in the 1980s, to include migration to American cities. Uh, it, sort of, it begins a little bit in the 1970s, but the, the interlinkage of the urban systems of Latin America and the United States really picks up speed in you know, what has often been called the neoliberal era, um, when city growth continues in Latin America, but it slows. And so lots of, of people who have migrated to cities say, opportunities here are simply not what they were before. We're going to migrate to a city again, but this time it's going to be a U.S. city. So to see that in, in hemispheric perspective gives you a stronger sense that you know, the United States is not the center of this process. We are only late arrivals to something that has been going on for decades previously. Yeah. And you show that. And you also show about the policies that I really like. You go into how IRCA had an effect within this, these building of these transnational communities and what's going on, these networks that, that Latinos and Latinas are able to build that are also shaping the urban landscape. And I thought it was so unique and it was so interesting, that discussion of how now the ramifications, the positive ramifications that we look of IRCA and how the ability for gaining naturalization, how that affects the urban landscape. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought that chapter and that discussion was so was so brilliant at oh, how well, you put it down. Well, I mean, that, that honestly, that just arose from the oral histories upon which so much of this book is based. That's um, something that when uh, sort of the, the team that I worked with, Xochitl Bada from the University of Illinois at Chicago, and Franco Bavoni, who then was at the University of Chicago, uh, we went out and did just sort of dozens of hours of oral histories with dozens of migrantes, uh, mainly from Mexico, but also from El Salvador. And when I asked uh, an open-ended question like, so you know, were there any major turning points in you know, the process by which your neighborhood turned around? And a lot of them mentioned la amnistia, right? The amnesty provisions of, of the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986 that allowed nearly uh, 3 million people to gain legal residence and for many, ultimately citizenship. So, uh, for example, Gloria Rubio, a sort of very well-known restaurateur uh, in Dallas, said, you know, that was the point when it became possible once you had legal status to get bank loans that you could not get before. That was the point at which a lot of people began to buy homes that they had previously just been renting. There was a fellow from Chicago who said more or less the same thing. He says, you know, I knew people who were keeping their, their money effectively in their mattresses because they were afraid that if they were deported, um, you know, they might not be able to get access to it. But he said once they had citizenship, literally overnight, uh, they began to you know, put their money in banks, reinvest, buy a house, um, buy a car. And so that becomes this, you know, a, a major cue to me that, you know, 
that that act has really intensified urban revitalization in ways that has not always um, been recognized. I, I should also say um, that all of the Chicago oral histories that we did uh, are sort of on electronic deposit at the Newberry Library. So you can go and look up the uh, Mexican uh, migrant oral history project at the Newberry Library, and there will be, I think, 18 or 19 or 20 oral histories of, of about an hour to two hours that you can listen to all this uh, in these people's own voices. They're all in Spanish, so you'll need to be able to speak Spanish, but you can hear them you know, explain this uh, in their own words. Wow. That's... You bringing up that topic, I, I wrote down, I want to go back and talk about oral, your this oral history project and, and also go back to the discussion about IRCA and the effects of IRCA. But before, how did you get into this oral history project? I'm really interested to know, and listeners as well, is that how, how these oral histories took you into this, to this discussion, right? And the larger discussion of how Latinas and Latinos have shaped urban America, how important was this type of methodology for you? I mean, enormously important just because... A lot of what has been written about urban revitalization in uh, the late 20th century and early 21st centuries uh, has been very theory-based, right? It's, it's been very influential, important work. So if you look at Saskia Sassen's work on um, sort of the, the way that capital and the people who, who manage capital flows move back into cities... Um, it's, it's really good, but again, it's, it's also from a very high altitude. It doesn't have the actual voices of people in it. And I wanted to be sure that, that I wasn't just saying, you know, come to me, the great specialist. I will explain to you what this all means. I wanted to say, well, no, what did the migrantes who did all of the work to make this happen, what did they think it meant? And so, you know, being able to just ask those kinds of broad questions, I'm not saying not saying, okay, can you, you know, validate my thesis by conveniently saying this? You know, you can hear on the oral histories that it's all tell me the story of how you came to the United States and how has your neighborhood changed? And it was really often they who pointed out here are important factors in revitalization, here are important factors in how sort of Mexicans occupy a community differently from the Anglos who are moving out. Um, I just got a lot of my cues from them. Uh, and so being able to access their ideas or their largely, well, no, entirely unfiltered expressions of here's what it meant to me. Uh, the book would have been completely different without them and not nearly as, well, I don't want to say not nearly as good. That sounds kind of conceited. Um, it would have been a much worse book had it not been for their voices. I mean, they're, they're, this oral history and their voices really, really added a rich texture to understanding this lived experience of Latinos and Latinos. Um, migrating right to urban spaces and shaping that and the pictures that you used as well and there's one picture particular in 271 for those that um, pick up the book and read it is that in page 271 there you can see the neighborhood of where it, there's a picture of la estrella supermercado just it seems like latina latino businesses and this is also like the effects that come out from urca as you mentioned is that home ownership and latinas and latinos are able to build their own wealth and move into the middle and professional class systems. And this is another area that we, we hardly know about within, within historical literature is this movement of Latinos and Latinas going, work, moving from the working class or working poor to becoming professionals, the middle class, and make, creating their own wealth within society. Right, exactly. Power. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's important to, to, I guess, mention that 
two different things are happening over this period, right? Sort of the, the, the big macro um, process is, is just a huge migration of about 25 million people who are, are who move to United States to, sorry, it's a large macro process of about 25 million people moving to U.S. cities um, from Latin America. Um, and at the same time, there's, there's the dramatic resurgence of property values, the dramatic resurgence of small businesses. I mean, if you look at a thing called the Kaufman Index, uh, it indicates that from, I think, about 1998 to the present, um, Latinos have been the demographic group most likely to start their own businesses. So to to again get a sense of of what kinds of services were there, um, whose businesses did you patronize, um, and why these local businesses? Right, you realize okay, well, people come and and they're going to want all these these goods and services in Spanish, and that creates a tremendous demand for Spanish speaking shopkeepers, Spanish speaking doctors, lawyers, uh, bankers. Uh, that it becomes a classic enclave economy that works, you know, in some of the same ways as Chinatowns or little Indias do, um, such that the sheer concentration of people um, buying and selling and things and, and offering and consuming goods and services um, makes, for example, so this came out in, in the 1990s, that the little village, uh, 26th Street corridor becomes the, uh, it's reported that it's the second most active uh, commercial corridor in all of Chicago. So it really makes a huge difference to cities that have been seeing so many of these small businesses just disappear in earlier decades. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah absolutely absolutely and it's and it this goes on beyond commercial and businesses this also goes into the enclaves of neighborhoods itself the house how homes are being structured and what mm. kind of environments being built and i go back to your pictures because they're they're fantastic and how it adds richness to your discussion another picture that Within, within your book that you talk about is on page 276 for those. When you read the book, look at this picture. And it's a little picture of a little village. Um, and it's dated from 2011, um, one of the pictures that you took. Can you talk a little bit about how, you know, Latinas and Latinos are also shaping neighborhoods mm -hmm. to have that that Latin American aesthetic of that, you know, that brings that home touch to them? Because I remember this growing up in, you know, in these neighborhoods. And that was something that made it feel part of my cultural heritage as well, something of value. Right. I mean, the big trend in Anglo-America from really the, the 1950s and 60s on is something that lots of, of English-speaking cultural commenters are fretting about, and that is the gradual withdrawal of people from uh, the public sphere, right, from public areas. So, you know, 
the more recent books are things like Bowling Alone uh, by Robert Putnam that bemoans this process. Uh, if you go back to, uh, I think, 1977, it was when The Fall of Public Man by Richard Sennett is published. Their constant refrain is, oh, everyone is, you know, they're not out with their their fellow you know, city dwellers are not out with people in their neighborhoods. They're just having their backyard barbecues. They're having, you know, they have their own swimming pools rather than going to the municipal swimming, swimming pool. Uh, the big movie palaces are closing because people are using their home video systems. Now that certainly is happening in Anglo America, but in Latino, Latino America, uh, it's really just the opposite because people are much more used to being in public, right? That doesn't seem uh, suspicious. That, in fact, seems like part of the joy of life. So even when they move into you know, a pre-existing housing stock, like in Little Village or Oak Cliff, um, they'll often use the space of the yard in a very different way. And you know, this is something that was originally pointed out by uh, the cultural geographer Daniel Arreola uh, back in the late 80s. He says, well, there's this thing that you can call a Mexican-American homescape. Um, in which the sort of the living space comes out very much onto the porch and in the front yard. And the thing that, that a lot of people notice is that when people from Latin America move into a neighborhood, they will often put a perimeter fence, a sort of a chain link perimeter fence. They'll put the kids sort of play things and play structures in the front yard so that they can sort of be outside and the grown-ups can both keep an eye on their kids so they don't run out into the street and they can, you know, visit with each other walking from from yard to yard and indeed this sort of use of the front yard becomes so common and so taken for granted that actually a new term exists in spanish uh, they call this uh, la yarda right and la yarda is that busy uh, vital front yard area um, that really puts people on the street puts people in public and in contact with one another uh, in a way that they are less and less uh, in anglo-america yeah, la yarda. And when I think of it, so this goes into a question I haven't um, about religion. And this brings me back to just growing up in, in, in these similar neighborhoods where you see La Virgen de Guadalupe, a statue, a porcelain statue sitting out in the yard or a statue of, of Jesus, you know, the Catholicism very prominent hmm. and making it known within these neighborhoods. Did you, did you also see that within these neighborhoods or what was going on with, re, with religion in that aspect? Yeah, absolutely. The uh, the Catholic Church was a very important resource in all kinds of ways uh, for these growing communities. Now, of course, it worked both ways. Remember that uh, a lot of the times as white ethnics move out of a neighborhood, that, that a lot of them are Catholic. And that means that the local parish uh, is going without parishioners. And that's, that's terrible for the church. So, you know, in part, it's the church recognizes these are the sort of the big new growing Catholic communities, uh, and they need to be taken care of and offered pastoral care and other kinds of care. Um, they become very important to sort of come back to, uh, to La Irca, um, in certain kinds of, of uh, key transformations in, in the barrio, right? Because when, when the 1986 immigration reform is passed, um, in Dallas, uh, Catholic charity steps up. They set up a huge sort of set of, of clearinghouses um, in, in major Hispanic neighborhoods, including um, Oak Cliff, whereby they say, okay, there's only, you know, there's less than a year that people have to get registered. There's all this paperwork they have to fire. So there's one, they have to, excuse me, all this paperwork they have to fi file. Um, and so they create um, sort of nightly sessions where you have English speaking people there to help them fill out the forms and whatnot. Um, and 
I do an oral history with a, an organizer named Vanna Slaughter, um, who talked about you know these these long nights in in uh, 1987 when there'd just be lines all the way up the stairs of uh, of the the local parishes as people sort of tried to get in and make sure they had all their documents in order so they could take advantage of the amnesty. You know that's that's one of the ways in which the church makes a really big difference in the lives of these migrantes. I, I totally see. I mean, it's at the root of it, it's how have they been building community? What resources have they been pulling into, right? Religion, politics, social networks, the migration patterns that have already been present and continue to evolve over the years. And then something happens, right? What's going on by the 21st century? And a lot of it, we're feeling it today with the political environment and landscape that we have been currently listening to in the news and reading or in the newspapers. Can you tell us a little bit about how now politics and globalization is shaping this Latina and Latino America that you talk about? Sure. I mean, the, the great contradiction and what is turning out to be the great tragedy of political economy in 21st century America is that human mobility, right, the most important aspect of globalization um, holds the key to solving our demographic crisis in this country, right? If you look at any of the reports from recent years um, from the National Institutes of Health, they say that, you know, birth rates among American-born people have fallen to uh, multi-decade lows so that we are not making nearly enough new Americans to keep our population consistent, to have a workforce, to contribute to social programs. And I should say that this is not just an American problem, right? If you look at at most other advanced industrial and post-industrial economies from Japan to Italy to Germany to Russia, they all have the same problem. Now, the only thing that is keeping the United States out of a sort of very dangerous downward demographic spiral uh, is immigration, right? It is only thanks to newcomers that we can maintain our population, uh, and and that we can maintain our workforce. Ironically, right, you see the simultaneous emergence of a political system that allows a minority of anti-immigrant Americans to sort of exercise veto power over immigration policy. Right, one of the strange contradictions of the past, you know, few years and really the past decade or two um, is that when you ask people, um, most Americans generally have positive feelings about immigrants and their effect on uh, American society. There is a, a sort of a hard core of 30% uh, who seem more afraid of, of immigration, but they have repeatedly been able, due to the inequities in our political system, uh, been able to, to sort of exert a a chokehold on our policy. So for example, in 2005-2006, the McCain-Kennedy bill, which would have offered uh, a path to citizenship for just millions and millions of people, that was scuttled because the sort of anti-immigrant wing of the Republican Party um, rose up and said, like, no, we're absolutely not for this. And, you know, in, in decades that followed. So for example, in 2013, the Gang of Eight immigration plan had, I think, 72 votes in the Senate. And it would have passed in the House, except John Boehner kept it off the floor, you know, to, to satisfy the demands of this anti-immigrant majority, me, this anti-immigrant minority of 30%, nonetheless managed to, to, to gum up the works. And I think the other terrible irony is that contrary to 
a very unfortunate and, and incorrect conventional wisdom. Um, it's not in places that have lots of immigrants that you see anti-immigrant uh, uh, political agitation. It's in places with very few of them, right? So those who, who know immigrants and immigrant Latinos the best, those are the ones who are most likely to, to see the need for more of them. And it's actually in um, equally demographically uh, shrinking rural areas of America that you see sort of Donald Trump's electoral base. Um, and it's just sort of tragic that, that they can't see that the only future for rural America, uh, which has been either shrinking or growing much more slowly than any other part of America, the only hope for them is Central Americans, is Mexicans, is Somalis, uh, is people from all around the world who would love to come and work in these small towns, but you know who keep running into an increasingly hostile and, and frankly racist immigration policy at the federal level. Yeah. And this pushback from the top down, right, from the administ- federal administration, also local governments pushing back in these certain areas of small towns and states that have been, you know, been known as red states, such as Texas. I mean, here I live in a red state and there's been a lot of pushback by the governor against creating some type of support for even refugees and for DACA students. And and I think what you also show within your chapter, you know, building a new urban America is that, you know, the resistance to get by federal at the federal level um, through administrations and politicians that you mentioned, but also you see a lot of, you see a lot of ground movement, a lot of grassroots resistance. And you show, I mean, you talk about that with the Latina Latino demographic, they're pushing back against this, right? We know, we know, looking at the pay, uh, one of the photographs of that you include in your work is about a demonstration in downtown Chicago in 2006, right? Pushing right. back against this, everything that's going on at the national landscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I should say also the the other thing to remember. You now, partially, it is 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 migrantes and other Latinos and Latinos themselves, but increasingly over the past uh, twenty, excuse me, over the past ten years, um, you know, non Latino people in cities have increasingly seen that you know immigration is their future. So there's an entire um, consortium of groups called the the Welcoming Economies. Um, uh, or Welcome America Global Network, um, and they have members like Global Detroit or the Global Cleveland Initiative, and uh, uh, sort of welcoming Pittsburgh, where they're actual agencies of city governments trying to attract immigrants to sort of settle in their otherwise shrinking municipalities. Um, so it's it's certainly you know mostly Latino and migrant driven uh, resistance, but they have plenty of allies. And indeed, even in Texas, um, you know, cities like Dallas that were long uh, had been Republican strongholds uh, aren't anymore just because mm-hmm. the people who live there are in the best position to see that, you know, America needs more immigration and that Latinos being the, the biggest subgroup and the best demonstration of their ability to revitalize areas. Um, you know, they're the ones who are on board with, no, we need more new Americans, not fewer. Absolutely. And yeah, you're right. I mean, certain, if you look at the local level and how you use the example of Texas, I mean, the last, was it the two, the 20, the midterm elections where you see, you saw some of the, looking at the map and the electoral landscape and the results is that a lot of little cities like Dallas and Fort Worth, Tarrant County are, 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 are turning purple. They're changing. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're, their, their belief system that that has always been there is changing and that goes the politicization of the of latinas and latinos and 
people of color and the younger demographics. Um, and there is a change, but there needs to be more push towards that, more, more raising, more activism. So I have a question, and this is one of my favorite questions to ask when I speak to authors. Can you tell us a little bit of, about your experience in researching for this book? Any of your favorite moments that you had while while doing oral histories or just traveling to different areas? Yeah, I mean, just spending time in, in these barrios and talking to the people there was the most interesting and rewarding part of it. And again, most of the interviews that we did were, were in Spanish with migrantes, uh, but there are also plenty of, of Mexican-Americans and Anglo-Americans who would just have these great stories um, about their personal experience of migration. And again, because you know all of these are, are complete oral histories are on file, when, for example, a fellow named Teresa Ortiz, uh, he's a, a Mexican migrant living in uh, in Dallas, he explains why it was that so many Mexicanos decided to settle in Oak Cliff, um, you know, completely unprompted. He said it was because you could walk around places, right? You, you could go from place to place on foot, which is what Mexicanos are more used to. He says, you know, it wasn't like North Dallas where you never get out of your car. And I, being an urban historian, thought like, that is the greatest quotation that goes right into the book. By the same token, uh, there was a, 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 an Anglo um, sort of owner of a family business called Charcoal Broilers right there on Jefferson Boulevard in Oak Cliff in Dallas, who says, you know, our, our family business that had been open for decades was about to close um, in the 1980s because just foot traffic was falling and just the, the profits weren't there. And he says, you know, it's really the Mexican crowd that saved us. He said, these people walk everywhere. They're going to walk up to Fomsa to buy furniture. They're going to walk over, you know, to the supermarket, um, and then they're going to walk by us. And they're going to want, you know, a hamburger or some chicken or some steak or something. And it's sort of another uh, unprompted description of the way that these Latinos occupy urban spaces. They're much more likely to walk uh, than Anglo Americans. So this just sort of kept coming up, and so they're both great stories and really excellent cues as to what makes this entire process work. Um, you know, another interview that I, I uh, remember in particular was uh, Gloria Rubio, that, the, that restaurateur, uh, who said, you know, when I first tried to get loans to open my first business, I went to the bank and they laughed. And I said, you know, en serio? She said, te lo juro, right? That, that, I said, seriously? She said, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, that, that she had to finance that first business just with her credit cards. There are all these sort of micro-level stories of, of key turning points. Um, and then there's the, the one that begins the first chapter of the book, right? That this fellow, Richard Dolej, who was the one who sort of uh, helps hatch this plot to, uh, to invite uh, uh, Mexican-Americans and then Mexicans into Little Village, where I sort of go down, this is, you know, about 50 years after these things happened, there had been rumors that there had been some kind of uh, uh, racial steering among real estate agents, but nobody had ever really had the goods. And I, I kind of asked him about it obliquely. And he says, let me tell you what happened. He says, the things we did were wrong. But believe me, I wasn't a rogue or a renegade. I did what I was detailed to do by the people in my community. And then he spends the next hour straight up confessing the entire, entire plot. And I said, Mr. Dolesh, I mean, what you've told me is pretty extraordinary. Uh, I just want to be sure it's okay for me to use this. 
because he had just, I mean, I, I won't say incriminated since, you know, that there was no criminal liability. This was before the 1968 Housing Act. Um, and I said, is it okay for me to, to tell people about this in your words? He said, sure. You know, I'm, he said, I'm 86 years old. I just want everyone to, you know, I want to be honest about this. And so that was the key to understanding a huge part of how Latino Chicago uh, emerges on on the west side. So there are just so many experiences where you're you're amazed, you're charmed, you're shocked. But this is people telling you about their histories in ways that are going to be incredibly important to formulating the book. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, that's great that they, that this person was opened up to you. But I mean, that's that's the beauty of oral histories, right? You you go in thinking one way, and then you're just surprised of how the conversation unravels with. When, when someone speaks to you and their ability to be comfort, comfortable with you in, in an ethical way, right? You, you ask for mm-hmm. permission. It's, that's, that's the marvelous thing about, I believe, about researching and con- using this type of methodology is that you get that richness of these voices that really, you know, shows what you can't, you won't always find in an archive. Mm. Exactly. Um, and so th- then that in turn becomes part of creating a new archive, right? So the fact that we've got all these oral histories fully digitized and available, that becomes a resource, you know, not just for this book, but anybody wants to use these migrantes descriptions of their experiences. That's, that's open to researchers for, you know, as long as those libraries stay open. Absolutely. I, I call oral histories. They're living in the archive. Just go, go see them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have a question. And this is, and this is a comment that I, when I first saw your book, the beauty of the, the, the cover. Can you talk a little bit? I mean, when you go, those listening, when you go buy this book, just admire this cover, how beautiful it is and how it just adds to the story. Where is this photo from? Yeah, that, that actually is a photo from uh, the west side of, of Chicago. So that's you know the area that, that I'm studying. Um, and it, it, it has a lot to do with muralismo, right? The murals that are so much a part of, of Mexican-American and Mexican um, visual culture, right? Those sort of big sort of paintings on walls that give up a real sort of uh, sense of identity uh, to a neighborhood. And so I was in conversation with uh, uh, the editor at Basic Books, Laura Heimert, and say, I said, you know, well, murals are, are sort of one possibility. And she and her art staff just went out and found this beautiful, you know, mural of, of, of La Virgen, right, of, of a Virgen of Guadalupe. And then they sort of combine that with a sort of underlayer of turquoise. Uh, again, if you just if you haven't seen the book, just Google Barrio America and just just be amazed at just how good the art staff is there because um, you know to them goes all the credit. I said eh, maybe a mural, but they just ran with it. And so when they first delivered that book to me, I just thought, oh man, this is just. I could not have imagined anything more beautiful than this. Um, and again, it's, it's has a lot to do with the richness of, of Mexican and Mexican American culture that you can have that kind of a, a striking presentation that, that finds its way under the cover of a book. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just looking at it, the, the contrast, the colors of turquoise and against the mural, even the texture of it, that's so unique. Once you feel the cover, there's a texture. It kind of feels, it does kind of feel like you're touching almost brick, not as, not as rigid, but it has that, that texture of it. Uh, but this brings me back to a, to a point that we haven't discussed yet. You know, you mentioned in Latino, Latino culture, visual, visual culture is so important murals, but you also talk about the issues with gentrification. And one example that, that you wrote about what I'm familiar about is in Pilsen, the mural of, you know, 
famous Chicano activist that was that was basically removed from this community. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, it was the Casa Aztlan Community Center in Pilsen, which had been there for decades, and it had you know all these murals on it with figures from Emiliano Zapata to Frida Kahlo to Subcomandante Marcos. Um, just all of these sort of culture heroes. And it was just one of the the extraordinary gems of a historic uh, Mexican-American and Mexican neighborhood. And in 2011, a developer bought it because, you know, what he really wanted to do was just turn it into condominiums. Now, there are plenty of big problems with that. But, but at the very least, you could imagine that that developer would see the incredible richness and incredible value of a whole building covered with murals. But one night in 2014, he sent people just to paint it over white. And there was a huge outcry because, you know, certainly, as I said, it's it's a difficult thing to be potentially pushing people out of a neighborhood. It's certainly been happening in Pilsen. But to also destroy the record of their presence there was just, you know, clear cultural vandalism uh, and ignorance about just what this neighborhood was meant to mean. So, you know, one of the, the the great threats to the sort of Latino neighborhoods that I'm talking about, you know, one is obviously misguided, uh, aggressive immigration enforcement. Um, but the other is just people who don't so much hate the people in the neighborhood, but they like the neighborhood too much and that they drive the prices up of housing and, and effectively begin to force people to move away. So it's the sort of double-edged sword of having revitalized these neighborhoods is now they're threatened not by abandonment, but by gentrification. Yeah, absolutely. I know when traveling for research, I went to, uh, this is in LA, um, Highland Park. And so it's, it still is for some, for to some extent, predominantly Latina, Latino um, neighborhood. Um, but how Latino, Latino businesses are trying to, trying to create resistance and survive is that now they're incorporating some things that the new residents, you know, quote unquote hipsters like enjoy and in order to create sustainability for their, for the business that that provides for them, their own, you know, for their own family. And it's something that has sustained them, not just economically, but culturally. And so I think that's, as you mentioned, the double-edged sword with how global globalization and how, and, the needs of the community is evolving with the changing landscape, the political landscape as, as well. So I have one question for you. Mm. Um, my last question, where do you see the direction of the field of Latinx history and urban history going? Well, there, I mean, there are so many different directions, uh, which is growing. I'm, I almost hesitate to, to specify any because you, know, you don't want to leave anybody out. But I mean, within, within Latino history, I think the, the big goal is to find ways in which we both tell our own stories and, when possible, try to show how this changes the broad narratives of American history. So that, uh, for example, in Latino history, um, there are political histories that are coming out, right? There's uh, Benjamin Francis Fallon just had a book come out on, uh, on Latino politics. Uh, uh, your work, of course, uh, is about uh, women and, and political activity. Uh, Jerry Cadava's book on uh, Hispanic Republicans is going to be coming out later this year. Um, so another direction in which we reconceptualize how 
established categories, for example, of race work, um, there's this interesting stuff on the Latino South, right? So you have uh, Julie Wise's Corazon de Dixie that's already come out. Um, but, you know, coming up is, is Cecilia Marquez's book on Juan Crow. Um, Yami Rodriguez has done some fantastically interesting work on uh, Mexicans in Atlanta. Um, and so those are sort of two examples. But of course, you know, for me being both a, a person in Latino history and uh, uh, in, in um, urban history, I think that, that uh, the effect of Latinx people on urban landscapes is a great way to, to refigure our national uh, narrative. And, and we've already seen, you know, books like uh, Eric Avila's book, uh, um, The Folklore of the Freeway. Um, we you see Brown in the Windy City by Lilia Fernandez. More recently, uh, Lana Barber's book, uh, Latino City. Um, if we think of, of Monica Perales's Smelter Town, these are, are, are books that, that, you know, try to compel us to rethink how urban history and how American history look different because, you know, Latinas and Latinos are in it. And I think this is just going to continue. And in fact, you know, the, the project that I'm working on now uh, is an edited volume, which we, I think, hope is going to be published by University of Chicago Press. We've been working with them um, that brings together a number of people who have been doing and are currently uh, writing um, specifically Latinx urban history, uh, but don't have books out yet. So, for example, uh, Pedro Regalado, uh, who graduated from Yale and I think now has a, a fellowship at Harvard. He's been doing great work on Dominicans and Puerto Ricans in New York, uh, you know, including Washington Heights. Uh, Johanna Londoño is working on um, the sort of transnational influences on U.S. barrios and sort of how some of the, the patterns in places like Colombia, and Puerto Rico, and, and indeed even Spain, um, you can see reproduced in U.S. cities. Uh, Sandra Enriquez has a, a book uh, that will be coming out on uh, community preservation in in El Paso. Uh, Becky Nicolaides, sort of a really important uh, urban historian whose first book, My Blue Heaven, was, you know, is a, a regular presence on, like, everybody has to read this book. She's now working on uh, Latinas and Latinos in suburban municipalities in the Los Angeles area. So she's sort of trying to make a move toward not just Latino urban history, but Latino metropolitan history, right? And she pays a lot of attention to the built environment, um, as does Mauricio Castro, uh, who has a book on, on Miami, where he looks very closely at, you know, what does the Freedom Tower mean to people? What does the urban space of the streets in Cayocho, what do those mean to people? So you know, those are ways that a sort of growing cohort of Latinx urban history scholars um, can really change the game in the field, I hope. I believe it will. I mean, it, one thing you're really telling me and we're telling the audience is that Latinx experience is part of American history and it's, it's shaped how we understand, you know, urban landscape, the environment, the political sphere, and then new works as well, adding to food as material culture, right? How has food shaped ideology of politics, identity, and you know, it's it's a growing field. It's mm -hmm. and it and it's breaking away from old old paradigms of how do we understand the American experience. This is the American experience. Yeah, I mean, food history is really promising, right? I, I know Matt Garcia is in, is in food history, and, and I think Mike Innes Jimenez's new work, uh, also on Chicago, is very much about the food supply and about the cultural meaning of food. So absolutely, yes. Well, I want to thank you for sharing your time with everyone listening and for being on the show today, Andrew. Ha sido un placer. Thank you so much. 
De nada, de nada. And for those listening, I want to thank you for listening to this episode, which featured Dr. Andrew Sandoval Strauss and his work, Barrio America, How Latino Immigrants Have Saved the American City. So if you want to send me a message, you can find me on Twitter, and I encourage you to share this episode with fellow podcast listeners. Hasta la próxima. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.